0: Hear the word of our God. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, we need... Peace and grace. And we ask that you would illumine the scriptures for us so that we may behold, understand, and believe that we have peace and grace in your Son. Instruct us so that we may trust you, that we would look to Jesus for all things, that we would serve Jesus in all things. And glorify Jesus in all things. We ask this in his name. Amen. At the time of the Reformation, one of the doctrines that the Reformers began to teach was the assurance of salvation, uh, basing this in part upon first uh, John chapter five, which says John said that he had written this so that you would know that you have eternal life. That they, he believed that we could know whether or not we have received the grace of God. And this, in some ways, seemed to be very scandalous to the Roman Catholic Church. Cardinal Bellarmine said that the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. This cardinal was no small man. He was no insignificant kind of person. He was the personal theologian to Pope Clement. So he had a little pull on the course of the Roman Catholic Church. He was one of the people instrumental in the Counter-Reformation that grew up within the Roman Catholic Church in response to the Reformation. And the reason why they... We're so angry about the doctrine of assurance. It gets back to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You see, they thought that part of our justification was based on Christ's work, but another part of our justification was based on our good works that God could not declare anyone to be righteous unless they themselves actually were righteous so, this is part of why they thought this idea of assurance to be the greatest of all the Protestant heresies. How could you know? Because you do not know what you will be like in the future. Whether you will do, continue to do good, or whether you will stumble and fall into evil. Because your obedience was one of the two defining factors of your justification. Calvin wrote about this. Always be afraid when the pastor brings out a big fat book, right? Okay. In the sixteen forty uh yeah, the fifteen forty one edition, not the sixteen forty one edition of his institutes, uh he, he talks about this in his section on justification by faith and the merit of works. It says, uh, for we do not conceive of a faith which is empty of all good works or of a justification which can maintain itself without them. Here, however, is the heart of the matter. Although we say that faith and good works are necessarily linked, we assign righteousness to faith and not to works. The reason for this is easily explained, provided we look to Christ, to whom faith is directed, and from whom it draws all its strength. For how do we come to be justified by faith? It is because by faith we lay hold of the righteousness of Christ, which alone reconciles us to God. But we cannot lay hold of this justification unless we also have sanctification. For when Scripture says that Christ is given to us for redemption, wisdom, and righteousness, it also adds that he is given to us for sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30. I want us to keep that in mind as we look at this passage, this idea of uh, assurance that is rooted in the righteousness and the work of Jesus and not in ourselves, so that we can, in a sense, rest assured. Our big idea this morning is that our assurance rests on what Jesus and the Father do for us. And so first off, I want you to rest assured because Jesus prays for his people. We are in the midst of this high priestly prayer that Jesus offers And Jesus continues to pray for the disciples. He began that process we talked about last week. But he's praying in their hearing precisely for their encouragement. And so that's why he he lays this out. These things I speak in the world. This is similar to what he says outside the tomb of Lazarus. He's speaking for the benefit of his disciples so that they'll know what was going to happen with the raising of Lazarus. But here he's now speaking for the benefit of his disciples so they know the good things that will come to them because of Christ and not themselves. His purpose here, he says, is that, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And that's... you know, The joy of Jesus, he's praying, would be fulfilled or made complete in them. He wants them to partake of the joy that he has. It is his joy that seeks and finds a place in the life of his disciples. Now let's remember for a moment what was his joy. His joy, as we saw earlier in this gospel, was in doing the will of the Father. And so it is precisely because he has done and continues to do the will of the Father that he's able to experience joy as our mediator and give us joy as our mediator. And so he prays. For the joy of his disciples, not the joy that the world gives, not the joy that they themselves might seek in and of themselves, but the joy that Jesus has, he prays for his disciples. At which point some of us might be tempted to think, inclined to think, obviously think, why don't we experience more joy? Why is it that Christians struggle with joy? with being joyful? Why is it that when we read passages like Nehemiah, that the, the, the joy of the Lord is my strength, that we, we kind of, where's that joy? Where do I find that joy? Why do we have such a, in a sense, meager experience of joy? Well, there are a number of reasons, but let's look at some of the ones that are here in the text. And one of them is the hatred of the world. We don't experience more joy because the world has hated the disciples. It hated them, those disciples in that day and age, and the world continues to hate the disciples of Jesus in this day and age. That's why we have to have, not have to have, but that's why there's something that we call persecuted church Sunday. The world hates the disciples of Jesus because they the world hates Jesus. You see, this is because the world's and the worldly person's autonomy is threatened by the call of the gospel to repent and believe. You see, they want to live as their own God. They want to be free from the accountability of someone outside of themselves, God, examining and judging their life and deeds. And so the message of the gospel comes and says, you're accountable. There's a God who will come and will judge, and you need to flee to the Savior to escape His coming wrath. And they don't want that. They want to maintain their autonomy, their freedom to sin. But we see here, the world has hated them. And we see in the course of the Reformation, if you study the history, we see the great hatred that the powers of Rome had for the Reformers. I mean, Luther lived under the death sentence for many years. Not, not, there's a bounty on his head. Excommunicated and uh, one who had a bounty in his head, he never knew when someone would come around the corner and try and take his life because he was hated. And many of the reformers experienced this same sort of thing. That's why they called the, the seminary that was formed in Geneva under Calvin the Seminary of Death because so many of their graduates went to other countries to plant churches there and were met with such hostility, particularly in places like France, and were killed. The hatred of the world, the hatred of an apostate church upon them. But we also see here in the text the evil one. It's not just the world, but behind the world, so to speak, is the evil one, the one whom they obey, as we see in Ephesians 2, first couple of verses. They listen. To the prince of the power of the air and they obey him and so that is part of why one of the great hymns that came out of the reformation is a mighty fortress is our god rooted in psalm 46 in which luther talks very much about the great enemy we have he didn't go on and on about the roman catholic church but he talked about satan because that was the real enemy the real one with which they had to do Our true battle is not with people, which was why in Ephesians 6, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so behind the people that we meet that seem to be opposed to us, that express their hatred and, or dislike for us, there's something else that is unseen. And Luther wanted the people to recognize the true unseen one we wrestle with, the evil one, and not get caught up in the face that it wears before us. I want you to think of it this way. World War I, Christmas one year, there was a truce in the trenches. They laid down their guns, and they met in no man's land, and they sang hymns to celebrate the birth of the Savior. And part of what this indicates is that they did not recognize those other soldiers as the ultimate enemy. They were only enemies because their governments were enemies. And so for a time they worshipped together. I mean, who worships with their enemy? Okay, But they worshipped together. They saw themselves as Christians on that day. They had kind of laid aside the insignia on their shoulders or on their helmets, and they worshiped together in Christ, seeing each other as brothers. Now, we're not brothers with our enemies, okay? But we recognize that the ultimate enemy is the evil one, not the person that we see. That's someone that we seek to rescue, not someone that we seek to destroy so a true battle but not only that the evil one because of the temptations that he presents us with with the afflictions that he inflicts upon us we experience these things and they work against christ's joy in us and sometimes we must admit that that is devastating I want you to think for a moment. Three people. Moses, Elijah, Jonah. All three great prof- prophets of God, used in amazing and profound ways, right? What do they also have in common? They prayed that God would take their lives. They were so overwhelmed with the opposition and the sin that that was uh, confronting them and the sin in their own hearts that all of them prayed that God would kill them. Numbers 15. Moses prays, If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. You pray that he die. 1 Kings 19. But he himself, speaking of Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. Don't sit under a broom tree, people. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. His opposition to the prophets of Baal exposed, I think, even his own sin, and he became overwhelmed with despair. Jonah, not in the belly of the whale, but on the hillside overlooking. Nineveh, after the vine died, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. There are times when that joy does not seem to be fulfilled in us, and that is because of the opposition that we experience and that is because of the voice of the slanderer within our ears pointing to our sin as if it were greater than the grace of Jesus. His disciples were intended to recall this prayer, I believe. Okay? They were to recall this prayer, to be assured that the joy that they would be fulfilled because of the son's prayers always being answered. It's not just my prayer, so to speak, that I would experience the joy of Jesus, but it is the prayer of Jesus, the faithful son, that we would experience his joy to the full. And so, recalling this prayer should bring joy to us uh, that Jesus lives forever to intercede in our behalf. Uh, you know, we have this prayer here in John 17, but we also have confidence because of Hebrews 7:25 that because He has been raised from the dead, and because He was ascended into heaven, and because He now sits at the Father's right hand, He lives forever to intercede for His people. Precisely so, He might save them to the uttermost. And they would partake of his joy, not necessarily in the here and the now, but definitely and certainly in the then and to come. And so the, we have to remember that the prayer of that righteous man, the one who is the only righteous man, is more effective than the wiles of the devil than the schemes of the devil, than the lies of the devil, than the temptations of the devil. And so the assurance of our salvation rests on Jesus' priestly prayers for his people. Secondly, rest assured, brothers and sisters, the Father sanctifies his people. Jesus focuses. Uh, one, of the, one of the things, if you go into my office right now, um, I, look at my whiteboard where I've got this text kind of mapped out. You'll see all these lines connecting all of these things. And as I was studying this passage, I was reminded of um, like the old entertainment systems, and you have all those. You know, you go back in the back, you know, to. to plug something in and there's all these wires everywhere and everything's connected to everything else and it gets confusing and this is one of those texts where everything is sort of connected to everything else and one of the things that runs through this one of the main things is this emphasis on his word the father's word and we see that jesus has given them he says your word The disciples, speaking specifically of them at this point, of course, they have the word of the Father because Jesus gave it to them. And we have it because they kept it, so to speak, and passed it down to us. But we have to remember that the disciples, and we as well, do not naturally possess God's word, but it is received as a gift. And should be treasured as an important gift. Why does it matter that we have this gift? It matters that we have this gift precisely because we remain in the world at the will of the Father and the Son. Jesus says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Isn't that our prayer? Jesus, get me out of here. Okay? Uh, I'm done with the politics. I'm done with the headlines. I'm done with my own wretched sin. I'm done with the sin of my, not my wife, my children. <laughs> the congregants. My sin. We're done with all of that. We want to be done with all of that. And so we, we kind of wish Jesus would pray, Father, take them out of there. It's time. But he doesn't at this point. Instead of saying, get them out of there, he says that you keep them from the evil one. Now, that's the same word we saw with connection to keeping God's word. It's that idea, again, for those of you who weren't there, that he would guard and protect these people and this time it's added in from the evil one. So the stakes have been upped quite a bit. It's not just, uh, you know, that I would be protected by an armed man trying to break into my house. We're talking about Satan. Our security rests upon the power. And the love of the Father to keep us. Not in our own power to keep ourselves from the evil one. And we see as Jesus prays this how it ties into something we prayed earlier in the worship service from Matthew 6. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. The consistency of Scripture, Jesus told his disciples and therefore us to pray in the same way, and he's praying with us. He's not praying something different. Okay, He's echoing this prayer that he has given us. And so, We can rest assured that our salvation is sure because the Father guards and protects His people. But Jesus goes one step further. Don't just keep them, He says, but sanctify them, is His cry. Sanctify them, Father. Set them apart. Purify them. Make them holy, is what He's asking for. And so we see here this idea that Calvin talks about in that idea of the double grace. Then when we're united to Christ, that we receive not just justification, but we receive sanctification. That process by, well, justification, that act by which God declares us to be righteous, and then sanctification, that process by which God makes us righteous, which is not completed, of course, until Jesus returns or you die, whichever comes first, okay? We have no, as Calvin would say, Jesus torn to pieces, but we receive the whole Jesus, and so we receive both justification and sanctification, and so that is what is behind this prayer, Jesus, sanctify them. This is why Paul would say in First Thessalonians four, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now the reason, as I kind of I mentioned earlier, that Rome hates this doctrine of assurance is because, in a sense, their final justification requires works, and so they focus on be sanctified or sanctify yourself. And here it is the Father sanctifying us. Our understanding of assurance and sanctification is rooted in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what we see here in this cry, sanctify them, is that Jesus asked the one he had just called Holy Father to make his disciples holy, as he is holy. This is the flip side, I guess, of that idea of protection. He also wants them to be purified. This is a completely consistent with what we see in the Old Testament. Leviticus 11, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Their holiness was supposed to be rooted in His holiness. And so Jesus is saying the same thing here. You're holy, Father. Make them holy for You. We see this as well in 1 Peter 1, verse 16, echoing the Leviticus passage. And how is it that the Father is going to do this? How does Jesus ask Him to do this? Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And so this process of sanctification, this being made righteous, being set apart by God, being made holy takes place through the means of the word of God. Now remember, there's a sense in which Jesus is focusing on the fact that we are passive here. We are not sanctifying ourselves, but we are being sanctified by the Father. But that does not mean that we are utterly passive, shall we say. For we see that there is no sanctification apart from the Word. That we grow only as we grapple with the Scriptures. Now, I'll tell you, it is possible to read the scriptures and not be sanctified. Okay? If you just see it as an intellectual exercise, you know, scholars do that all the time. Well, so do people in pews. Okay, uh, you, you, you just read it because, you know, you, you've got your, your Bible in a year program, and it says today I'm supposed to read Psalm 3, so I'm going to read Psalm 3 and get it over with. If that's how you're approaching Scripture, you're not going to be sanctified. Okay? But there is no sanctification. Just as there's no sanctification apart from the work of Christ and union with Christ, there is also no sanctification apart from the ministry of the Word and your life. It doesn't happen because that is the means that God has appointed For your sanctification and that is the means that Jesus prays for for your sanctification and so God will sanctify you as you are grappling with the scriptures what does this say I'm to believe about God what does this say about what God has done for me do I believe that and receive that do I what do I need to turn away from what do I need to put on That's what it means to grapple with the Scriptures. And so that is why Paul says in Colossians 3, for instance, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We do this so that, as Paul says in Romans 6, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That transition that takes place as our minds are renewed and we begin to put off these things, and I'm not going to offer myself to sin in this particular way anymore, but now I'm going to offer myself to God in obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit now. And so I would say that we are wrong if we see holiness as opposed to joy. Jesus is praying for both of these things. They're meant to see as one furthering the other. His joy, Jesus' joy, was found in His holiness and sacrifice, and so we experience His joy as we grow in holiness and sacrifice. This past week, as I was... uh, driving for a lunch appointment. I've driven over the Rialto who knows how many times. But for this particular time, it kind of struck me. A river of sand. That's all the world has to offer. It talks about finding our delight in sin, finding true life in sin, but really all that it can give us is a river of sand. And a river of sand can sustain nobody. You can't live on a river of sand. His joy is fulfilled in us precisely as the Father sanctifies us and we grow in obedience and holiness. And so our assurance of salvation rests on the Father who sanctifies us by His Word. Thirdly, lastly, hopefully more quickly, rest assured Jesus sends us to the world. Sounds odd to say, rest assured. Jesus sends us into the world. Remember, the world is a place that hates us. So why would we want to go into the world? But remember, Jesus did not say, take them out of the world. And there's a reason. And he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The apostles were sent into the world and like them we are sent into the, world. the church is sent into the world the disciples were tasked with bringing the word of god the gospel of jesus christ into the world and we share in that same calling that same mission we are not called to retreat from the world We are not called to form these little communes or monasteries. Now, we're in Arizona. There's lots of open space, right? So wouldn't that be a great plan? Let's go dig a big well and build up our own homes and not be bothered by all those sinful people out there, right? That is the exact opposite of what he wants us to do. He equips us, he challenges us to engage the world that we might call those who are currently of the world out of the world and into Christ. Our faith is intended to be lived out in the world. And so some of you have been sent to high schools, if you're teachers or students. Some of you have been sent to Raytheon. Some of you to TEP or hospitals or the U of A, all of these places, Hughes, Credit, you know, sent there. For that reason. Because Christ sends his church into the world. One of the things that's great about the World Series Is that you find out about some of the players in the World Series? You find out things that you didn't know about some of these players. And so here I am. I read this little article about Ben Zobrist. I never liked Ben Zobrist because he played for the Devil Rays. Well, the Rays then. Okay? He played for Tampa. Divisional rivals. I can't like him. Okay. But as I I read this article, he's my brother in Christ. And he sees himself not just as a baseball player, but in a sense as a missionary. I mean, he's not there to annoy people with Jesus, but he is there to be a living representative of Jesus in the clubhouse. And this is not the only story that I read about during the playoffs. Uh, Colby Rasmus, they talked about him. Uh, he's now with the Astros, but it was while he was with the Cardinals. He was not a Christian, but it was the Christians in the clubhouse who lived their faith and, and made known the reason for the hope they have within him, them that he now is a Christian and does the same thing. That's what we're supposed to be like. It doesn't mean you, you go to, to high school and stop teaching math And okay, folks, we're just going to talk about the Trinity today. Your job is not to teach them theology, but you are to live in a way that's consistent with Christ and the gospel and to offer them hope when they have none and when they ask you. Jesus continues in a parallel statement, you know, grammatically it's parallel, for their sake I consecrate myself in order that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so we see here that in light of his mission, Jesus, because he was sent, he sanctified himself. Let's let's put it in two parts, okay? The Father set him apart for this mission, but Jesus also set himself apart for this mission. He sanctified himself. What does that mean? Particularly if we think of this in terms of Jesus as our great high priest and the one who would be the sacrifice, we see from the Day of Atonement reading that we had in Leviticus earlier that the high priest was to consecrate or sanctify himself to perform the duties of the day. And so we saw that he had to take a bath. And that he had to get dressed in particular clothing. Meant that he was not an ordinary common Israelite, but that he was not also not just an ordinary priest, but he was acting as the great high priest who's going to go into the Holy of Holies that day. He had to be sanctified. And the sacrifices themselves were set apart, taken apart from the rest of the herds and the flocks so that they could be sacrificed on that day. And so in both ways, Jesus, as priest and sacrifice, is set apart, and He's set apart so that we can be set apart, so that we can be sanctified. That's where we get back to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And so we are sanctified, and here's that again, that wire that goes back. We're sanctified just as he was sanctified for mission, we are sanctified for mission. It's not just so that we sin less, though that is very good. We're set apart for that mission. We're set apart and we're purified for that mission. Because if we're not purified for that mission, they'll never see hope in us and ask us for the reason for that hope. And so the idea of mission was meant to be foremost in their minds and foremost in our minds. And yet so often we kind of have everything upside down. We're supposed to have our calling, and everything else is supposed to kind of fit around that calling. But we kind of try to fit our calling in around everything else. And some of you have probably heard the, the illustration about the jar and the sand and the rocks, right? that? That's what we do. The sand would be the stuff we want to do. And the rocks is the stuff that God calls us to do. And so we put all the sand, all the stuff we want to do, into the jar. And then we go, oh, I don't have a whole lot of room for rocks. If we put the rocks in first, then you are able to pour, the sand goes down into all the nooks and crevices and it gets all the little empty spots and all that kind of stuff. But you may not get all the sand in, but you got the important thing in, which is the rocks. We try to keep filling our lives with the sand and hope there's room for the rock. Jesus sets us apart, the Father sets us apart for the rock part, not the sand part. And sometimes we just need to go, oh, yeah. Help me to fix this mess I've gotten myself into. Cry out for grace. Rome gets it all backwards. You see, they, they're afraid that we won't do good works unless we live in fear of God, the negative fear of God, the fear that he might reject us if we don't do enough good. Good. The Reformation, on the other hand, grounded our assurance back into the work of Christ who died in our place, rose again, and ascended to the Father's right hand where he continues to pray for his people. Assured of salvation, we are also sanctified by the Father, prepared for good living, prepared for good works, prepared for completing the mission that Jesus began And so we serve not out of fear, but out of love, out of gratitude, in the hope of the joy that is to come. And when we do, Jesus does give us his joy, which the world can neither understand nor extinguish. Why don't we pray? Father, I thank you that Jesus is in many ways more economical with his words than I. And so I do pray with Jesus this morning that you would fulfill Jesus' joy in your people that are in this room. I ask that you would keep us from the evil one. I ask that you would sanctify us by your word, by the truth. And I pray that we would hear that call to mission, which has been issued by Jesus and has not been taken away. Father, do these things because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.